0: Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 32, Who is God's Family? And in this episode, I would like to pick up right where we left off at the end of episode 31, when we began to discuss that if Jesus is Israel, then we would not be surprised if there were some sort of conflict Regarding who the true Israel is, after all, if Jesus comes into the Gospels and declares to be the proper fulfillment of all that Israel is, particularly when they see the discrepancy between the ways Jesus chooses to live and the way many of Israel's leaders choose to live, we would expect nothing less than a conflict. And in fact, that's exactly what we see, And so what I want to do for this episode is draw your attention to one of those conflicts in particular and what it teaches us about who God's family actually is, what it means to be part of God's kingdom, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, and then to continue our discussion, looking at just who Jesus is and what he's come to set up. And so I'm really eager to get into this. For those of you who are Christians listening in, this will really, again, help you to understand your own identity and also challenge you with some um, otherwise really tricky parts of the New Testament to fully understand. So I hope that we'll be able to gain some clarity on those passages as well. So let's jump right into it. I'd like to begin this week's episode by simply reading for you a passage from Mark three twenty through verse 35. And so here's what it says. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, for us to understand even a glimpse of what is happening in this passage, I actually want to back up a little bit and give you some of the context. This um, appears in the end of Mark chapter 3, and so we have a couple of chapters in Mark's gospel that have happened already. If we flip all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, he says in the very opening opening words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, Um, It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, so we know it's the beginning of the gospel. Now Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, in episode 24, I took the time to try to explain why I think the kingdom of God is a good representation of a way to piece the whole Bible together. And we looked at um, how it all fits together. And starting with the kingdom of God, worked our way from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the Bible. And so Mark is telling us that the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God, of, of Jesus, the Son of God, when Jesus comes proclaiming this gospel, what he says is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so it's helpful for us to know this, especially as we get into this conflict with the Pharisees, because it's gonna center entirely upon Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom of God having arrived. And so if you remember back to episode 24, and I've sprinkled this throughout in various other podcast episodes, but I've chosen to define the kingdom of God the way von roberts in his book god's big picture chooses to define it and that is the kingdom of god is god's people in god's place under god's rule enjoying god's blessing and so jesus is announcing in mark 1:15 that he is here bringing god's kingdom and in god's kingdom what are the kinds of things that happen well, that's actually what Mark 1.16, all the way through right up to where our passage um, begins in Mark 3.20, that's what that's all about. And so without reading those two chapters for you, let me just give you a, a, a sampling. Um, in in 1, 16 to 20 Jesus calls people to follow him. That, that's something that happens in the kingdom. Um, the, the next six or seven verses, he teaches the people in their synagogues with authority. Okay, that's also something that happens in the kingdom of God. Jesus heals a man with a demon. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. Jesus heals crowds who are sick, have diseases, or who are oppressed by demons. Jesus is preaching and healing in all the towns. He heals a leper just by touching him. He heals a paralytic and forgives him of his sins. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in the house of a tax collector. Jesus disrupts religious practices. His things on fasting are, are seem, seem to be backwards to everyone who looks at him. He works on the Sabbath in order to bring real rest to a man in need. And in Mark 3, verse 7 and following, we're told these things. A great crowd followed. All who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Now, again, if if we back up just a little bit, into some of the things we've said before talking about the Son of God, Jesus being the Son, Israel also having been called God's Son. It's very interesting though that the kinds of things Jesus is doing in claiming to be bringing the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, repent and believe in this good news, the kinds of things Jesus is doing are incredibly foreign to the sorts of things that the Jews and the religious leaders in particular are not doing. And so uh, we, we know a conflict is is coming it's approaching it's definitely going to be something that is going to be a clash of kingdoms of, of sorts because these kinds of things are God's kingdom in action God's rule breaking into the world and bringing with it blessing. this is precisely what Mark does. Example after example, after example, after example, through chapters one, two, and in chapter three, rapidly, Mark, Mark does a lot with immediately this happened, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately, Jesus is on a, a rampage here of bringing God's rule into the world and bringing with it God's blessing, because he said, the kingdom of God is here. So then all of the things that I just mentioned, him working on the Sabbath and eating with tax collectors and sinners and healing paralytics and forgiving them and touching lepers and healing them, the kinds of things he's doing then are not preparatory to the kingdom or a sign of the kingdom or an indication that the kingdom has come or even an illustration of the kingdom, but actually the kingdom of God itself at work. God is asserting his reign over a world that has fallen under bad management. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 1. Mankind was created to rule over the earth, to rule well as God's image bearers. Well, ultimately, humanity failed at doing this. Israel was called to remedy that problem, and Israel too has failed. And so Jesus is simply the one sent by God, God himself, who is asserting his reign over the world has fallen under bad management. Now it's in response to all of this kingdom activity that Jesus's family comes to him and says, he is out of his mind. And you're going to need to keep this intention for just a second, because The scribes then uh, enter the scene as well, and they're kind enough to offer us their evaluation. (laughs) Um, And and the question really on our minds needs to be, what do people think about Jesus's claim that the sort of things he's doing is what the kingdom of God is all about? This really will center around very closely into what we think God's rule um, in God's place is. Um, over his people will look like in order to bring them blessing. This is going to come right down to how would we define what that could and should look like? Because everything the scribes and Jesus's own biological family thought they knew about God's way of doing things was being challenged by Jesus. It was being flipped on its head. Jesus is touching unclean people. He's speaking And demons are fleeing. He's healing sick and diseased people by the hundreds. He's disregarding nearly all religious behaviors. He's disrupting holy days by working on the Sabbath. He's eating with all the wrong people in all the wrong places. And he's claiming that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is just madness. it's, It's religiously outrageous. The things that he does, the things that he says, when he does them, who he does them with, it's all wrong. It's pure madness. It's pure insanity. He's out of his mind. It's pure devil work. He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. And yet Mark, in his gospel, insists that this is Jesus bringing the kingdom of God. Right. And we would expect that in order to bring the kingdom of God into a world that does not rightly honor Jesus as king, Jesus' very presence will inevitably challenge every other kingdom people have created along the way. Religious ones, biological ones, political ones, And personal ones. And so the very first words of the passage that I read from Mark 3.20 then actually set us up for this entire narrative. And here's what they are once again. Then Jesus went home. Now a good question to pose when you're listening to this or when you read this is where is home for Jesus? Well, it's Nazareth okay, sure, that's where Jesus grew up. Um, Or you might say once um, his hometown rejected him, he made Capernaum his place of ministry where he was going to have a a place to be. So you you might say Capernaum, or you might say, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so maybe Bethlehem is home for Jesus. Or you might be remembering the time where he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so it's interesting that Mark doesn't really give us too much of a clue here, but you and I ought to be asking this question. Well, maybe it's Nazareth. Maybe it's Capernaum. Maybe it's Bethlehem. Maybe it's, we don't know, but remember Jesus has come to set up God's kingdom. And in a kingdom, one's home is simply where one's family is. Okay. Well then who is Jesus's family? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a fantastic question, and that is actually what this narrative throughout the rest of Mark chapter 3 is actually all about. So then, Jesus comes home, and a crowd gathers around him. When Jesus' family hears about it, they try to rein him in, saying, He is out of his mind. We're then told that when the scribes come down from Jerusalem, they start saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, another good question that you might pose when you are reading through this narrative is, why does Mark tell us the scribes have come down from Jerusalem? What's in Jerusalem? Well, the temple's in Jerusalem. Right, the temple, God's house. Okay, so then what do you do with people who, when they see you bringing God's rule and blessing to the world, conclude that you are crazy and possessed by Satan? I mean, these are members of your own biological family, as well as those claiming to be part of God's family, i.e., members of God's house, those who come from Jerusalem. Do you see what is happening? Mark is introducing us here to a dynamic question regarding who is part of God's family. Is it the biological extension of Jesus and and you may have not thought about this before, but when you see his own mother or his own brothers, you realize that Jesus was a son, Jesus was a brother Um, to an actual biological family, and what's going to be their place in the story, what's going to be other people's place in the story. You have religious leaders who serve and work in the temple. They claim to be part of God's family. So there's a lot of dynamics, a lot of moving parts here, but no one is quite sure what to do with Jesus. And so they try to distance themselves from him. I mean it, it actually comes naturally for people to demonize that which is foreign to them or those things or people that they don't understand. Now, you and I all do this. We we we, we do. I mean if somebody is strange or odd, you know, if, if one of my kids is acting out. In a In a funky way, around the family or in a church gathering, I might look to the people around me while my kid is acting wild and say wow that 's my wife 's daughter or that's my wife 's son and I say it jokingly, but what i 'm doing in a subtle way as i 'm saying that the craziness there that that comes from somebody other than me and so you know we do it in a, in a mocking way unfortunately it's it 's not actually happening in that way here. his family is completely um pushing him aside altogether. And then of course the religious leaders go one step worse and actually label him as being, you know, a pawn of the devil himself. But when we see things that look and sound as foreign to us, as the kind of things Jesus is saying is in doing, we have to find a way to make sense of it all, to fit it somehow into our understanding of the way the world works. And so either we conclude that one, Jesus is bringing about the kingdom of God correctly and therefore my way of thinking about God's kingdom is wrong and needs to change or my way is actually correct and Jesus therefore is completely off base, i.e. he's out of his mind or possessed by Beelzebub. So what we have here is a clash of kingdoms, a class clash of citizenship, a clash of family. This is what Jesus wants everybody to understand. He's drawing out people's preconceived ideas. He's drawing out people's connections. He's drawing out where it is we find our own allegiances and who we will line ourselves up with. And so he says in verse 23, he just poses a series of questions to his own family, to these religious leaders. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, did you catch the pattern in what Jesus was saying? Kingdom. House leader. Satan, Jesus says, also has a kingdom. He too is building his house and he alone rules it. Right. And now God is coming with a kingdom of his own, building his house and has set a leader over it Jesus. And so it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I know it's tempting to demonize what you don't understand especially since what I'm doing will demand a complete life change for those who wish to be a part of it. But you can't really think that saying I'm in league with the devil solves your problem. This is what the kingdom of God is. And if you don't see this as good news, people being set free and made whole and welcomed and forgiven, then maybe that's because you are the ones in league with the devil. And then he introduces something rather strange in verse 28, and here's what it says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now I remember as a as a young christian uh, probably in my teenage years hearing about this um, in a passage this shows up in a couple of other gospels and hearing it as the unforgivable sin oh my goodness what if i've committed the unforgiven unforgivable sin the unpardonable sin what is jesus talking about here by saying that a person who blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness have i ever done that have i ever you know and and begin to panic and then different people have various interpretations of what the unforgivable sin is and 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 on and on it goes and and i've noticed quite a bit of confusion at least in my own mind, in my own heart, and I've never really heard too many satisfactory answers to this question. But as I was studying this passage here, it, it began to make more sense to me in the context of what's happening. But I want you to listen very closely to what I'm pretty sure Jesus is saying here. Jesus has come bringing the good news of the kingdom of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and people are being freed They're being healed, welcomed into community and forgiven of their sins. And Jesus has his own biological family looking at him and saying that he is out of his mind and his religious leaders telling him that he is possessed by Beelzebul and that by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So if you look at this kind of thing happening, this work of the Holy Spirit in action, and you label that work demonic, then there is simply no way for you to be forgiven. You see, Jesus is not threatening some condition for salvation here. This is not God making a condition for your salvation that if you accidentally slip into this unknown, mistaken, unforgivable sin category, that you are doomed forever. Jesus is simply recognizing and stating for everyone else to recognize that you would never ask a person for forgiveness that you think is working for the devil. In other words, as N.T. Wright put so well, if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. You see, once you label what is in action the work of the Holy Spirit, as the work of the devil there's no way back and that's the issue because the problem Jesus has encountered is that the kingdom he's bringing is one that comes with power with power he touches Peter's mother-in-law and her fever leaves he rebukes demons and they flee with a word he forgives sins he calls paralytics to stand up pick up their mat walk and go home so Power has been so misused and so mistrusted throughout the history of the world that most people have never seen a good expression of it. So, what do they do when they see Jesus exercise power? Well, they unfortunately naturally assume it's a power of the negative sort, just like they've always been familiar with. But what if the power Jesus operates in, the kind that heals, frees, welcomes, and forgives, is both stronger and of a different kind than what they're used to. And what if those caught in the clutches of an enemy's kingdom who find themselves unable to overpower him and set themselves free, what if someone with superior power could do it for them? What if someone stronger came in and rescued them who tied up the one stronger than they were and then set them free, who didn't use power to exalt himself, but instead used it to exalt others. What if that was what the kingdom of God was really all about? Then those who joined themselves to Jesus and his kingdom become members of the house he's come to build. Picking up in verse 31, this is what Jesus says, or this is what Mark tells us. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Did you see what has happened? Jesus has come bringing God's kingdom, God's house. And who is now standing outside that house? Jesus' biological family. Those who called him crazy. They are now on the outside looking in. So then, who's sitting inside with Jesus? Those who, according to Jesus, do the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. You see, in one short narrative, Jesus has culminated a ton of information into one massive shift. And that is that Jesus' home is wherever and his family is whoever sees all that he's doing in the world, embraces him along with everything that involves, and willingly follows Jesus in those ways themselves no matter how much it turns their own personal lives upside down. It means looking at Jesus' life And insofar as his looks different from ours, recognizing that the error lies with us and not with him, and then asking him to change our lives accordingly. Who is God's family? Those who do God's will. Those who see Jesus doing God's will and see it as the tremendous blessing and reinstating of a human ruler over God's people in God's place, bringing his blessing back to the world. This is what it means to look at the person of Jesus and see things that I'm going to be really honest with you are in fact very, very foreign to our 21st century American perspective of what we expect To see in the life of the church and what we actually are not necessarily even convinced God is still doing today. Jesus is casting out demons. He is healing people from diseases. The sinful people are flocking to Jesus. They know he is someone who can be trusted. So here is Jesus, the holiest man on earth who ever lived, who was not holier than thou, but holy nonetheless. And the sinful crowds, the sick, the oppressed, the the fever laden, the demon oppressed came flocking to him. Does that describe the experience we see today in churches? Are the sinful, outcast, oppressed people finding hope and refuge in our gatherings? This is not only a rebuke, it's not meant to be a shameful thing at all. I am simply recognizing that for us, repent and believe in the gospel the reason why the gospel is introduced with the idea of repentance is because you and i are not naturally drawn to seeing these kinds of things happening and want to rejoice it makes us uncomfortable sometimes it makes us really uncomfortable But Jesus is drawing us in and he's saying anyone who gets to be part of my family, anyone who is part of God's family are those who see the things that I am doing and want to get on board with those kinds of things. To the extent that a follower of mine has a life that does not mirror my own, it is to that same extent that he or she needs to find room for proper repentance it is removing the kinds of things from our hearts and from our souls that prevent have allowing God the space to occupy more of our lives. It is removing the kinds of things that our hearts are attached to, the fears, the insecurities, the concerns to save face, and to ask God to fill us then with more of his own presence and his own power. Because Jesus coming in and offering a kingdom of Power was unnerving to those who had only ever seen an abuse of that power. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of what made the, the Pharisees or the religious leaders or the scribes so uncomfortable was that the closest they ever got to power was always for self-centered gain. And they assumed that Jesus, if he claimed to have power at all, was probably going to use it for the same self-centered agenda. But he didn't. And yet they then looked at the things he was doing, the freedom The encouragement, the the welcoming of sinners, the socializing with them, forgiving them of their sins freely that set such a disruption to the Pharisees. They had nothing left but to label Jesus' work, work of the devil. And I do think that this is how the unpardonable sin, if you will, fits into the description. But Jesus is here reinterpreting for us who then become part of God's family, part of his house And these are metaphors that the rest of the New Testament will use repeatedly in describing the role of the church. The church is a temple, a spiritual house. We are being made into a dwelling place for God by the spirit and Jesus will breathe on his disciples saying for them to receive the Holy Spirit and then to be his agents in the world offering forgiveness to the broken and repentant in our world. That is one of the biggest tasks of the church. And so the church actually becomes the family of God, not because the church is more special than Israel. This has nothing to do with what some have called replacement theology. Oh, the church is now the new Israel. It has nothing to do with that. The focus is on who is connected to Jesus. What is their response to Jesus? what is their reaction to the person of jesus and to the actions of jesus how do they take the things that jesus does and the things that jesus says and how do they allow the differences that they see between jesus and themselves how do they allow those differences to impact them do they push jesus aside and say that my way is really correct Or do they open themselves up to the possibility that the kingdom they've actually been building is contrary to Jesus's, but because Jesus's is the true expression of what it means to rule the world well, and what it means to be an agent to bring God's blessing to the world, then it is in fact their own lives that need to change. And this does in fact set you up and set me up for the entire purpose of the Christian life. The entire purpose of the Christian life is to continually, day by day by day, reorient our own lives to look more and more like the kind of compassion-filled, forgiving life that Jesus lived while on earth, asking God to increasingly offer to us the same types of blessings he offered to Jesus so that we can serve the world as, as um, meaningfully as Jesus once did. And so that's really all the time we have for this week's episode. We are beginning to place a subtle shift in the podcast. This is at least my intention. And in the weeks that are coming, we're going to pay even more attention to how it is then that those who find themselves in Christ are actually able to claim the promises that God has always made for his people and what God's intentions for the world have always been. In and through his people, but ultimately in and through Jesus, and now from Jesus and through Jesus, in and through us. And so I'm so thankful that you are listening in. I received a great great couple of questions this week, which has shaped a little bit of what I've just said in this episode, but I'm hoping to be able to address those types of, of questions as we proceed. I'm very excited for where the podcast is headed. Please. As as usual, share this with friends if you think others could be encouraged by it. Um, don't forget to leave me a rating or a review on the podcast app that you're choosing to listen in on. But I'm so glad I'm so so glad that you're um, that you're tuning in, and I look forward to talking with you next time. Have a great week.